Hey, we're going to do something slightly different this Sunday instead of heading out those doors to Children's Church. Can I borrow? No, you guys are good. I need you too. If you're ages like three to first grade, uh, we need you right up here. If you want to head to Children's Church, you can. We're, we're, I, I just need to play a game real quick. Three years old to first grade, right, right here. Can you guys help me corral them, you know? Um, yeah, I need, I need you guys right here. Is that it? Okay, over here. Way over here, right in front of the, by the table. Can you guys stand over here? Do you want, who wants to play a game? Who wants to play a game? Cool. Who wants to play chess? Yeah, no, let's not play chess. Who wants to play hide and seek? Hide and seek is fine. Who, you, do you know how to play hide and seek? Oh, good, good. So do you know how to play hide and seek? You're going you're gonna to close your eyes. And you're going to count to five. Everybody's going to help. We're all going to count to five. And I'm going to hide. And then you have to find me, okay? You, you just you stay here, though, okay? You just have to look for me. I'm going to be somewhere up here. And you just point and you say, there, there's Pastor Essen. And then you can go play. Yes. All right? So you guys are going to help. You're going to count to five. You guys are going to close your eyes and I'm going to hide. You ready? Are, are you, you're five? Good. Count to five. Ready? <laughs> On your mark. Get set. Close your eyes. Go. One, two, three, four, five. All right. Where's Pastor Essen? Can you see me? Can you can you see me? Oh, oh, there I am. Wait, no. Stay down there. <laughs> good job. You guys are good at this game. One more time, okay? Can you do it one more time? Are you ready? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. And everybody count one, one to five. Ready? Go. Okay, where's Pastor Essen? Oh, man, I knew this was a bad idea. Oh, wait, you found me. You found me. Good job. You guys are so smart. All right, go on to Children's Church. Thanks, you guys. Well done. All right, turn, uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 20, and thanks for indulging that. I hope it's going to make sense in just a second. Just hang in there. Um, yeah, what we've been hearing from the, the various readers up front is all of John chapter 20, and it's a, uh, a, just a constant refrain of Jesus, after the resurrection, seeking uh, and, and like being determined to, to prove to his followers that he's risen and he's looking for them, right? Um, it's sort of like hide and seek. He's seeking them out and he's, he's determined to find them uh, and no matter where they are. Uh, so let's look at the very end of chapter 20. Let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm gonna pick up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, uh, was not with them, with the rest of the disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. And we pray that the reading and hearing and receiving of it would help us to see Jesus more clearly, to believe in him more sincerely. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Um, I just want you to, to see the way Jesus pursues those who are hiding, um, the way that he seeks out the disciples. And, and here we get to Thomas. And, and, I, and I just think it's beautiful how, how Jesus responds to Thomas. I, I want to start with what he doesn't do to Thomas. Uh, he's, he's not angry at Thomas. He, he's not mad at Thomas. He's not correcting him and like, Thomas, why are you you? <laughs> you know, I can't believe you're such a loser, you know, for not believing, even though all the rest of the disciples told you I'm, I'm risen, right? He's not angry. Um, he's not shaming Thomas, like, oh, what a terrible person you are. Uh, he's not criticizing him. He's not mocking him. Like, you know, we, we have this phrase, doubting Thomas. This, this is that Thomas. And I don't know where that nickname came for him. I don't know if it was Peter or James or John or one of the other disciples, but it wasn't Jesus, Jesus didn't mock him like, oh, you doubting doubter. Hey, everybody, look, it's doubting Thomas. Uh, come here, Thomas, put your finger in my nail. He's not mocking him. He's really very tender with Thomas. Um, the, the kind of kindness that Jesus demonstrates to Thomas in seeking Thomas and pursuing Thomas's faith and his belief, it's really remarkable. I mean, think about that. Thomas, I want you to put your finger into the nail wounds in my hands. And I want you to put your hand into that cut where the spear had been shoved into Jesus' side when he was still on the cross. Like, like the fact that Thomas said that that's going to be the litmus test for his belief is just kind of wild and crazy, but what's even wilder is that Jesus says, fine. Jesus acquiesces. And he says, come on, Thomas. And, it's, and it was actually just enough, um, right, for, for Thomas to receive Jesus uh, coming to him and saying, here I am, Thomas. And we don't actually know if, if Thomas did, in fact, put his finger into the wounds and into the side. It doesn't say that. It just says that Thomas saw him and said, my Lord and my God. And that's, that's why he believed. Um, and I don't want you to miss either in, in Jesus's reaction to Thomas. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, which, okay, 
If that's not who Jesus, in fact, is, Lord and God, then Jesus should have done what at that moment? I mean, that's blasphemy. That's heresy. That's crazy talk to say to another human being, my Lord and my God. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't correct Thomas. He commends him. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Thomas. And and you know who else is blessed? Everybody who believes without seeing, you know, without the luxury of putting our fingers into the nail wounds on our hand and into his side. So, you know, we're told that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you, you may have life in his name. Um, and so this Easter, I think it's good to look at this passage and just be asking ourselves, do we really believe that he is our Lord and our God? Is Jesus, is that who Jesus is to you? And do you have life in his name? That's why these things are written. Do you have life in his name? Do you even do you even kind of know what that means? Is, does, that, does that resonate for you? Or is that just, you know, stuff that they say in church? Um, and, and then if you do have that life, does anybody else see evidence of that life? Can they see a change in, in us because we say, my Lord and my God? And does that give us the kind of life that, 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 that in the kingdom of God actually has an impact on our neighbors and and on the nations, right? Like, does that, are these things true of us this Easter? So in order to kind of address those questions, I want to talk about two, two, two things. You know, hide and seek, like we were playing with the kids, and then lost and found. And we'll start with hide and seek because we've been hiding forever. We've been hiding ever since our first parents. In the garden, Adam and Eve, right, they, they, they take that forbidden fruit, and then they realize what's happened. And we'll pick up in Genesis chapter 3, the eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and, they, and then they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? I mean, is there any place Adam and Eve are really going to go to hide? You know, their, their butt's going to be sticking out from behind the thing. Like, you can't hide behind the curtain. God knows, right? It's not Jesus, it's not God needing information. Like, he's really puzzled. I just wonder where they are. This is an invitation. Come out from your hiding. Come out from behind the curtain, come out from under the coffee table, and come into the light where we can engage with our Lord and our God. Why were Adam and Eve hiding? It's, I don't think it's complicated. I think they hide, they were hiding from God for the same reasons that, that you and I hide, right? We, why do we hide? We, we hide uh, and we make excuses to, to cover up our failures. And, and we hide by 
by shifting the blame and, and, and wanting the spotlight to be on somebody else so that you know, our mistakes and sins aren't exposed. That's why we hide. That's why Adam and Eve were hiding. They were trying to hide their guilt and their shame. Um, and you know, sometimes people, they, we stumble here. Like, this seems like kind of a big deal over a piece of fruit. Like, what, what, what was the big deal? Why was, why was this so instrumental, circumstantial, you know, in terms of humanity's, the consequences for humanity? Well, you know, it's not, it's not that eating a piece of, of fruit is, is such a terrible thing. You know what the terrible thing was? What was terrible is that they would turn their backs on the living God. That they would turn their backs on what's cosmically and eternally real in preference for a little bit of fruit. That was what was so terrible about that moment. That was the shame and the guilt that Adam and Eve were experiencing and recognizing that the tragedy and the bankruptcy of that transaction, like, what? Why? What? How could we have done that, right? And so we got to hide. We do the same thing. Um, another picture of that kind of hiding and that kind of like being lost, like wanting to be lost, just wanting to get away uh, is modeled for us by Isaiah, the prophet, and he had spent the first five chapters of his book, it's a big, big book in the Old Testament, um, talking about all the stuff that Israel had done wrong. He was God's prophet, right? So he's kind of telling the truth like it is, hard truth for God's people. And then Isaiah gets a vision of God in his throne room. And he sees the, the train of the Lord's robe. That's all he can see is the, basically the back, right? He's not seeing the front of the Lord because no one can see the Lord and live. God told Moses that. And he sees the angels around the throne and he's just got this vision of such glory and, and such beauty and such holiness and such otherness that it's, it's, it's mesmerizing. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, but it's, it's, it's just, it's undoing. Isaiah was undone. And his reaction to such holiness and, and beauty and purity is he says, woe is me for I am lost. I need to hide. I need to get away for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, right? So Isaiah becomes aware of He's got more in common with the sinful people of Israel than he does with God. And so he says, no, you know what? I am just like them. I'm not like him. I'm like them. And I'm undone and I'm lost. And he becomes aware of his failures and his sins when he gets this, this vision that just wrecks him. It, it confronted him with not the, his identity with God, but the lack of identity. Not, not the beauty of his soul, but the ugliness that's there. And that's what happens to us when, when, when we get a vision of great beauty or glory or holiness, we would have the same reaction as Isaiah, Isaiah did. Uh, and we become aware that, you know what, everything in our soul isn't very pretty either. Uh, and there's an ugliness in our soul. And I'm not trying to be, be mean, I'm just trying to say, here's, here's the truth. And it bleeds out when, when our circumstances get to be more than we can handle and we lose control, uh, we lose our temper, 
Uh, we say things we shouldn't say, and we lose the inability to maintain the mask. The mask comes down, and there's the ugliness just bleeding out. In our anger, in our greed, in our lust, you know, in our you know, racism, you, you name it. So, you know, we need help. We're, we're lost like Isaiah is, but God loves to play hide-and-seek. And he loves to come running after his hiding, lost children. This uh, week, I think it was Thursday, I was up at the corner here, Ludewitt and Rosser, and there's this truck that's turning onto Ludewitt from Rosser, and I'm getting ready to turn from Ludewitt onto Rosser, and so he's coming by me, and I'm looking at this white truck, big, big new white truck, looks really nice in it, and big black letters, like advertising, you know how all the companies have their logos and stuff. In big black letters on this white truck, it says, expect to self-rescue. Like, Man, that's weird. That's, I don't even know what that means. How do you, how does anybody self-rescue? I just, I'm, I'm looking at this white, big, expensive white truck with this big, expensive advertising on it, and I'm looking at this slogan that just, it, it, it means it's nonsense. Expect to self-rescue. What is a rescue? A rescue is when you can't help yourself and, you know, we need somebody else to, to come and extricate us from the situation that we can't get out of. That's what rescue means. And so there's no such thing as self-rescue, but here's this big truck telling everybody that it drives by, this, this is what you should expect to self-rescue. And and I, and I don't know, my mind gets thinking about sometimes these things and I obsess and I, so I, look, I Googled it. What does that mean? What company was that? Expect the self-rescue. And, and those of you who are like into climbing and camping and you're out, outdoorsy and adventure you're way ahead of me because you know where this is going. It's, it's, it's like a thing where they're telling you, be prepared for bad things to happen when you're out there with bears and snakes and cliffs and boulders and things. Like it can be a dangerous place and you might need to bring some precautions along. That's not a bad idea. Okay, cool, I'm on board with that. You know what then the tagline is after expect to self-rescue? You know what the tagline said after that? No one is coming. <laughs> I'm never going outside again. <laughs> um, I'm never hiking again. No one is coming. And, and, and people, people wear t-shirts with this stuff on them. And they have bumper stickers with this stuff. And they're like, expect the self-rescue. No one's coming. I got this. I got me. I can do this. And they're not just living a lie. They're, we're, we're living an oxymoron. We're living a contradiction. We, you can't rescue yourself. I can't rescue myself. I, I need a rescuer. I'm lost. We're lost. And the good news is that Jesus loves to play hide-and-seek. And he comes seeking after us. We don't have to self-rescue because Jesus came. He came to rescue us. And, and in these readings in John 20, it's really cool. You, you, you see the... Uh, the extent to which Jesus goes, like, like the disciples are in the upper room and it's locked and he appears to them. And then eight days later, they're still there. 
<laughs> it's still locked. And he's still coming after him, and he's patient, and he's kind. Just the kind of kindness. Here, here Thomas, stick your, stick your fingers here. Um, even playful. Like there's a joy that Jesus has in coming after us in seeking after us and saving us who, who are lost and who need a rescue. This whole business about um, the, the women getting to the tomb and, uh, and, and they're looking in and they see the grave clothes, right? They see the grave clothes on that stone slab where the body of Jesus would have been laid. And at the head, what did, what did it say? What did John say? It's really interesting detail about the, head, the face cloth. It wasn't bunched up like the napkin at the end of your meal. It was folded and placed at the, the head of that, that plinth. Um, when you see stuff like that and, and you're reading in the Bible, don't gloss over that. That's interesting, isn't it? Doesn't it make you go, what, what is going on? Why is that face cloth folded and, and, and laid there intentionally? Like, like Jesus rises from the dead, he's in the tomb, and he's on his way out. He's like, no, you know what? I'm going to... Okay, now I'm going to go. Why? I mean, I'm not going to stand up here and like dogmatically tell you this is why, but I've got an idea. This is going to be so fun. And he puts it there as the OG Easter egg. It's the very first Easter egg. Because you know what Easter eggs are in the movies, right? They're these little things that the director, the producer, the writers, you know, they hide in the background just, you know, just, just for fun. It, it, it contributes nothing to the storyline, but it's just playful. Like in Indiana Jones, like this is one of a very old Easter egg. Here's Indiana opening the ark or whatever, and there in hieroglyphics in the background is R2-D2 and C-3PO just for fun, just because Steven Spielberg and Lucas were bros, you know, so it's cool, it's fun, and, and, and what is Jesus doing? I got to go show the world I'm risen. Oh, but wait. Just for fun. You can see his kindness, his, his playfulness, his determination to bless the disciples with the revelation that he's not dead, far from it. He's alive, and he's He's the king. So one of the other things about that, that folded up uh, um, face cloth, who includes that kind of detail in something that's fictional, not, like, like not real? Like if, if th this was an eyewitness account, that's only something an eyewitness would say. And you know what? There was the face cloth and it was folded. And then you get the, the first witnesses are women. And you just see Jesus upsetting the apple cart for how the world works. Like women didn't even have a voice in court in the first century. And God says, you know what? I'm going to place the, 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 the reversal of the world's order, the resurrection. I'm going to put the testimony for that in the mouths of those that the world would rather not hear from. It's playful. It's beautiful. It's disruptive. And it's, it's unorthodox. So the disciples are behind locked doors. Jesus pursues them. Thomas is, is hiding, the disciples are hiding, everybody's hiding. And, and so the disciples are behind locked doors. Why? Because we're told that they're afraid of, of their, their, um, their peers, like their countrymen, the Jewish people 
who would be upset with them because they're identified as, as those who follow Jesus. They're afraid of maybe the consequences of, of being associated with somebody who's, who's been executed as an outlaw, right? So some legitimate fear there, fear of retribution, fear of punishment, fear of consequences, and that's why they're hiding behind locked doors. Thomas has sort of got a different kind of fear, a different kind of hiding, where he's maybe afraid of being gullible. Hey, Thomas, you weren't here, but Jesus came. I'm not going to believe that. No, no, no. I'm not going to be sucked in. Not, I mean, he would have to come here and I'd have to put my finger in his wounds and my, my hand in his side before I blew it. I'm, I'm not going to be taken in. I'm not like those simpletons. You know, hiding. Hiding behind some pride, hiding behind like, I'm not going to relive what maybe was a childhood thing where he was exposed as being stupid or gullible. You know those oaths we take? I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to be a victim like that again. Afraid to take a risk and hiding behind this strong man pose. One author said, desire begins to feel threatening because to want something is to risk disappointment. What are we hiding behind? If we're not in glory yet, all of us are hiding behind something. We're not 100% perfected, right? There's things that, that keep us from really experiencing the fullness of, of the conviction and the fullness of the consistency of believing and living in such a way that we are celebrating and, 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 and realizing Jesus is risen. This isn't, this isn't fiction. This isn't a fairy tale. It's, it's real. So... How maybe are we afraid of the ways that people might treat us if they were to know, I am for real a disciple and a follower of Jesus? Not, not just playing the Sunday thing, but all the time. What might the consequences be? And I'm not trying to minimize that impact at work or at school or in your family. I don't know. But do you want to take a risk? What about the disappointments that you might experience if you really go all in with Jesus and really trust him and really call him your savior and your God, your Lord and your God. Like, what are you risking? How might he disappoint you? And how might those things that you're kind of holding with white knuckles with this kind of grip, how might those things need to be put aside? in order to call him your, your Lord and your God. So there are things that keep us from letting Jesus invade our lives, from, from just letting him disrupt our, our norm, from, from letting him call the shots and him having authority. We're all playing hide and seek in various ways, right? Like we're trying to hide from him, imagining that he can't see other shape behind the drapes or us hanging out underneath the coffee table. He sees us and he loves us. He loves us just like Ezekiel the prophet predicted that behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. 
There's no self-rescue. Jesus is coming. And he finds those who are lost. I mean, that's really something the Bible tells us again and again and again. And, and some of you are old enough to remember the, the, the whole thing of in like the 90s and early 2000s, there, there started to be these like seeker-friendly churches and seeker-friendly services and stuff. And we started calling people. It was, it was interesting. Like words have meaning. And, and, and we stopped calling. There, we, there was a shift from from people who, who weren't disciples, who weren't coming to church and who were in our neighborhoods and we're trying to reach them. We used to call them lost people and then started calling them seekers because that seems more friendly. I don't know, that seems you know, more honoring. I, I get that to a degree. And, it's, and, it, and, it's, and there's, there's biblical validity to that. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked you know, forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's part of the gospel. It's this beautiful invitation. Come, seek the Lord. But the Bible also says that, you know what? That ugliness in our soul is so pervasive that, it, that Paul says in Romans, quoting another prophet, that there's really nobody that truly seeks after him with a genuine heart. And we need him to seek after us. We need to recognize he's the, the one who really comes and, and, and seeks. And, and Jesus does this whole beautiful illustration through three different parables in Luke 15 about you know, a shepherd who loses his one sheep, leaves the 99, and goes and finds that sheep. And when he finds it, he, he, he says, rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. And then this woman and She's got her dowry, her wedding, you know, presents in the form of coins, and she loses one of the coins, and she's like, oh no, I, I, and she's in a panic until she finds it, and she finds it, and she says, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost, and then, of course, you get to the prodigal son, or prodigal sons, and the one son goes, and he, and he takes his, his share of the inheritance, and he, and he squanders it, he wastes it with, you know, crazy living and all kinds of sinfulness, and, you know, he, he's a wreck, right? And he's lost. He's, he's the prodigal. And he comes to his senses and he comes home. And the father says, rejoice. We're going to have a party. This son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost. He's found. He goes out to his son and smothers him with kisses. But then he goes out to this other son, the older son, who was lost too. The younger son was lost in his sins. This older son sort of lost in his pride. Not going in. I'm not celebrating. That guy's an idiot. You're an idiot for having a party for him. This is terrible. Why are we celebrating? And the father says, no, we, we had to celebrate. Because that's, that's what's important to me. That's how, that's how much I enjoy seeking and finding that which is lost. And you need to come in too. Jesus came to seek the lost. Everywhere he went, he went looking for the lost children to reunite us with our heavenly father. And he summed up his entire ministry saying, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus, <laughs> even after he rises from the dead, he's still seeking and saving the lost. Still seeking after those who are playing hide and seek. Still playing lost and found. And the gospel is God's outrageous announcement that he delights to take people who are lost in their sins and bring them home to become his children. 
That's the gospel. And the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. You can either be lost in your sins or you can be lost in Him. My friend Don Ward, who, who you know, uh, Kyle was praying for earlier, he's the pastor, was the pastor at Grace Community in Charlottesville. He's now a missionary with, um, with ELI. And he was just diagnosed a couple months ago with stage four lymphoma. And we talk, and we were talking on uh, FaceTime on Monday um, and just getting an update. And he was saying, Essen, you, you, I just have to tell you about this book, new book by Tim Keller, uh, Forgive. And in this book, there's a quote from a theologian named Charles Hodge. And he says, Essen, I cannot get over these words. I just, I need to read these to you. And the context is a courtroom. And Charles Hodge is describing Jesus, our advocate, Jesus, our attorney, and when he's your representative, when he's your advocate, this is the relationship that we have with him. Charles Hodge says the advocate personates the client, puts himself in the client's place. It is, while it lasts, the most intimate relation. The client is not heard. The client is not regarded. He is lost in his advocate. This is the relation in which Christ, our advocate, stands to us. He appears before God for us. We are lost in him. He, not we, is seen, heard, and regarded. Christ thus assumes our position. And when Don finished reading those sentences, he was, he was crying. There were tears in his eyes. He said, Essen, I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm lost in my advocate. And look, I'm not trying to be over, overly sentimental or emotional here, but look, when, I mean, Don's prognosis is actually pretty good. Um, stage four lymphoma isn't like stage four other cancers. It, it's, it can be treated and we're hopeful and we're, we're still praying. So thank you for praying for my friend. But look, look, I mean, I don't think there's anybody here that, that could get a stage four whatever diagnosis and not wake up to the reality of I'm mortal. And I want to know I want to be sure that this isn't just a fairy tale. I want to be sure that Jesus is who he says he is. I want to be sure that the gospel does for us what it promises to do for us. And I want to be lost in my advocate. I can't stand before the Lord and, and answer for my own stuff because then I'm lost, truly. Unless I'm lost in him who went to a cross to die for our sins to take our place as a sin-bearing substitute so that when he died, we died. So that when he rose, we rise with him. We're united to him. We're in him. And this is what the gospel promises. This is what it means to be in Christ. When you believe in Christ, you're in Christ. You're lost in your advocate. This is what John says at the very end of chapter 20 here, verse 31 that we read earlier. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in 
his name, in your advocate, in our sin-bearing substitute, in our righteous representative. That's the gospel. Justification means that we are no longer lost in our sins. We are lost in our advocate. That his death is our death. His life is our life. Our sins are accounted to him. His righteousness and his goodness is accounted to us. That's how, that's how we're saved. That's the rescue. And then what do we do now? We're rescued for a purpose. Why are we rescued? Well, to go on and show the world the goodness of, our, of the one who seeks us, the one who has come and to rescue us, to point to the rescuer. And that's another way of just understanding what sanctification is. Sanctification is showing the world what it means to be lost in our advocate. Um, if, if you're tracking with me and if you're going, okay, 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 but... If, if, you're, if you're thinking carefully, there may even be a concern that you have at this point. Like a little, little flag, a little flag that's waving going, you know, I, the language of lost in our advocate, that sounds nice, but what about those relationships where people kind of lose themselves in their friend or their spouse uh, or their parent? They don't have an identity anymore. Uh, what about people, what about relationships that, that are so controlling and so kind of, you know, unhealthy where you have to believe what the other person believes, you have to think the way they think, you have to vote the way they vote, you have to like the same books and movies and so on and so on, and that's unhealthy, right? It can even be just downright abusive if that person is coercive, making, trying to make their spouse or their son or their friend or daughter believe those same things. So we don't want that. But being lost on our advocate, lost in Jesus, is not the same thing, is it? Because to be lost in another person means that you take on, well, just their mess. But being lost in Jesus means we take on not his mess, but his beauty. I mean, can, is there ever is there going to be an occasion where to think what Jesus thinks or to do what Jesus does is going to be the wrong thing? Of course not. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he tells the Colossians, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, for you died and your life Look, he, doubled, he doubles down. Your life is hidden in Christ with God. Lost in our advocate. Um, being lost in our advocate doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to like the same ice cream that Jesus likes. I, I don't know what kind of ice cream Jesus likes. I'd like to know what kind of ice cream Jesus likes. I, I probably would like it. Like you're still your own person, but you become your true self the more and more we identify with the truest human being who is truly God and truly man who's ever existed. That's where we find ourselves. That's where we find the courage to actually find our voice, to not be afraid of people, but to love them, to not be afraid of your neighbor's criticism and condemnation, their mockery, you know, their, their, their disdain. Instead, you can even move into that encounter and receive those 
those wounds because you're trying to love them with wisdom, okay? With wisdom. Grace and truth. Truth and grace. But you become your true self. You find your voice. And you're no longer conforming to this world. Jesus said in John 17, he's praying for his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you believe Jesus is your Lord and your God? If so, great. Can the world see it? Being a Christian means being in Christ. Being a Christian means being literally a little Christ. Are you? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks this Easter Sunday for the resurrection, for the evidence of your heart to to seek and to save the lost, not only through your work on the cross to take away our sins, but your work even after the resurrection to pursue your friends, to love them and to be kind to them and to, to, even, to even have fun with the reality of the revelation of your resurrection. Lord, would you help us to, to find our, our true selves in you, uh, to be lost in our advocate and, and save those even now who are here who might be lost still in their sins. And move them from that lostness to to a lostness that blesses us, that helps us find our true self, to find ourselves in Christ, in whose name we pray.